Welcome back once again to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Kernickian. Say hello, Sean. Hello, everyone. Hello, Brian. So as most of you that listen regularly and those of you who are listening the first time will learn, we tried our very best to pick out cases from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, and the United States Supreme Court occasionally to talk about the effects of plaintiff's practice in California. And in doing this, we look at cases, we try to find cases uh, that come out that are interesting. And this one is really unique because almost all of the four cases that we're going to cover today came down on or about the same day in um, October 2019. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that. In a a time capsule. Yeah. uh, Yeah. In uh, 30 or 40 uh, centuries from now, it's 2019. So... We're going to cover some interesting cases today. Sean, is first, his first job today is tell you where you can comment about us, where you can find us, where you can respond and give us information. And the second job is to give a little summary of what we're going to cover today. Sure. You can find us here downtown LA in our office. No, no, Just no, stop no, by. no. We open door policy. Anyone can walk well, in if at you're, any time. If you're coming to find Sean, don't come before <laughs> 1030 in the morning. Uh, we're online at kbklawyers.com. And you can follow us on all social media, I think. And you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and everywhere else. We've been getting some good feedback. 10.30 uh, to about noon for Sean. And then about 1.30, 1.45 when he comes back for lunch. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then 4.30, 4.45 in the afternoon. Yeah, that's a long day. That's, that's a full hours. day. Yeah, that's a full day. That's the best. Or in and out Burger. Oh, yeah. Um, there isn't one close to downtown. That's one of the problems with downtown LA. Um, anyway, so today we have a set of four cases, so it might be a shorter episode. Um, I'm sure everyone's happy about that. First, we're going to talk about the California Insurance Guarantee Association for anyone that's done a little bit of work comp, SEGA. Um, and we're going to find out more about that. Then we're going to talk about um, a Government Tort Claims Act case and uh, the restrictions there and when they can be liable and when they're not. Then we're going to talk about additional insureds, uh, a supplier adding a retailer as an additional insured. So that's a super interesting insurance issue. And then at the end, we're going to talk about the distinction between the um, overtime premiums and meal and rest break premiums. Which you don't get either. When do I get my lunch break, Brian? You don't get a lunch break. Please. Okay. Uh, Let's let's, jump into the first case. Uh, It's the California Insurance Guarantee Association versus Alex uh, Azar, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services. This is a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case. Right. So it's an interesting case for a couple of reasons. First of all, probably most people listening have some basic understanding of the Medicare rules and the liens that apply in personal injury cases. This happens to be in a workers' comp case, but I think it's interchangeable, and that Medicare generally has a primary claim for um, reimbursement under uh, insurance. So if you're in an accident and something happens and you have a Medicare lien, the Medicare lien has to be satisfied as part of a settlement, right? We all understand that. What I bet most people don't have a working knowledge about is SEGA, which is the California Insurance Guarantee Association. Right, and I don't have a working knowledge about much when it comes to the law, uh, but why don't you tell us what SEGA is, Brian? Let's start with that. So the first thing about SEGA is that SEGA is effectively a state-created agency. It is um, created in the 1960s by the Insurance Code of the State of California, and it's not unique. Many, many states have an insurance guarantee association because there is a phenomenon that happens when insurance companies go out of business. Now, you, insurance companies really don't go bankrupt. They go into receivership, and the state uh, insurance commissioner takes them over, the sees them, 
And then the state insurance commissioner's job is to effectively liquidate them. But what that often means is that the insurance company doesn't have enough money to pay claims. So SEGA comes along. So SEGA is funded by all solvent insurance companies in the state of California that are admitted in the state of California. And you know what that means, Sean, right? Right. They have uh, <clears throat> they have the ability to practice here or sell services and insure people right. here. So just because an insurance company isn't admitted in California doesn't mean they're not a good insurance company. It just means that you have no SEGA protection. So if your insurance company goes out of business and they're not protected by SEGA, you might very well be out of luck. Okay, that's probably getting more in the weeds than anybody really wanted, but – It does happen, and it happened frequently in the 90s that insurance companies, liability insurance companies were going out of business. And today, Shant was sharing with me before we got started that a lot of workers' comp companies, like fly-by-night workers' comp carriers, go out of business, and that's what came up in this case. Yeah, I, I hear about this when I talk to you know uh, acquaintances of mine that do, because no, no one's really I, you, a friend. I, I'm right. You didn't right. use the you, word I, friends. I was, I was glad very you didn't careful use the about that. Friends. I don't have any friends. Uh, but when friends of mine uh, do workers' compensation, they they always say, "Watch out for Sega, or that one's going to be a Sega claim now." Um, and it's a problem because so, they're tough to deal with. So this case didn't arise with one workers' comp carry that went out of business. It was a general question the state of California was suing the federal government over, saying that you don't have a right, federal government, to seek reimbursement in the context of workers' comp claims for from SEGA. You don't get money from SEGA. And their argument was that Medicare is usually entitled um, to a beneficiary's primary payer to, to get paid back, right? Yeah. But yeah. here, SEGA, they argued, the city of California argued that SEGA is a secondary payer. And um, by the way, the district court agreed with Medicare in at the, at the lower court level and found that uh, Medicare gets primary payment there. Right. Uh, and, on claims. And that, SEGA. And, and the Ninth Circuit said, no, you're wrong. That's not correct. SEGA is, in fact, um, really a secondary payer, that Medicare is a primary payer. Medicare is um, uh, not entitled to reimbursement. So that's really the holding of the case. But then they go on from there and say, that's really the law in all states, that that's, that's the way it happens with um, most of these insurance guarantees. But a couple interesting issues about the case. One is insurance is one area that Congress pretty much stays away from. So the court specifically found that Congress did not intend um, the the Medicare program to be primary to these insurance guarantee programs. This is also relevant because if you do come into a context of a case where there's a, a injury claim and it's a third-party carrier and the third-party carrier goes belly up and there's SEGA, you, you do not have to reimburse Medicare. Right. Now, I'll also say this, that there is no joy – and going after SEGA um, for your client in either a workers' comp or a third-party context. It is a nightmare. You're probably going to have to take right. the case to trial. There's no bad faith against them. There's nothing that you can recover. Um, other than the fact, the good news is they're not a primary payer, and if your client gets Medicare, they don't have to pay it back. That's right. the only bright light there that I can give you that comes out of this case. But it is interesting about SEGA. It'll happen again if you practice long enough. You're going to see an influx of insurance companies that fail. I think the insurance commissioners are a lot more careful today. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't fail as often. Maybe it's just because the economy is excellent. Yeah, yeah. That's right why. Right now. That's why, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, moving on to our next case. This is Kim versus United States of America. This just came down from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal and involves the Federal Tort Claims Act. Uh, sad set of facts here. The Kim family and uh, another boy, I believe, had gone out to um, Yosemite. Yosemite. Which is a national park in- that we that Sean has never been to because he doesn't engage in outdoor activities unless it's getting in the car and driving it in and out. Right, because Brian is such like an outdoorsman. That's right. right, yeah. Right. Spent my life outdoors. When I'm not outdoors, backpacking, I'm hiking. I'm you know I'm I'm living off the um the land. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we make fun of this, but we really shouldn't. It's a tragic. Fact. It is a sad set of facts. Um, the the two boys were were in one tent. I guess the parents were in another. And a giant tree branch fell and killed these two children um, while they were in their tent. And the family sued the federal government under the Federal Tort Claims Act. So let's start with a a basic understanding of the Federal Tort Claims Act. Sure. Uh, Tell us what the Federal Tort Claims Act is, That's Sean's way of saying he doesn't know what the Federal Tort Claims Act is. Tell us, The Federal Tort Claims Act is the statutory ability to sue – for private parties to sue the federal government, of course – uh, unlike regular tort law, governments have to grant you by statute the authority to sue them. The The basic rule is that you can sue for tortious conduct, but however, there's limitations on that. The first thing you should know yeah. is a side note is if you do sue the federal government, it has to be in federal court. No surprise there. Not fun. Not fun. It, there is no right to a jury trial. No? No fun. Oh, wow. And you're limited know, to kidding. 25% attorney fees. Yeah. So um, not great. You know, they don't make it real attractive to go after the federal government. But But hey, sometimes you're in circumstances where that's your only option. So we respect the people that do do that. Um, So there are certain um, exceptions in the Federal Tort Claims Act that don't allow for um, a claimant or a injured party to sue the federal government. And one of those exceptions is the discretionary function exception. Um, and that bars claims against the federal government, and that's what this case is about, the, the specifics right. and of so that. This, fun- is, this case is on the pleading. So this case was thrown out in the district court on a, on a basically a 12B6 or a motion to dismiss. After a second complaint, it had two causes of action, one for negligence against the federal government and one for fraudulent concealment. I'll, I'll save the suspicion here. The fraudulent concealment claim was thrown out, and the district, uh, the federal court, the Ninth Circuit, upheld that. So we're not going to talk yep. about that. But we are going to talk about is this very unique exception to the Federal Torts Claims Act, which says if it's a discretionary function, you can't sue the federal government, yep. right? And there's a two-part test. The first test is whether or not the challenge action itself had any kind of element of judgment or choice as opposed to it being mandatory and required under a statute. And if it falls into the mandatory or required under statute, you can sue. If it doesn't, then you have to look at the second prong. And the second prong is if there was an element of judgment, it has to determine whether or not the judgment is the kind of the discretionary function exception was designed to shield. So the federal government here said, look, we had discretion about whether or not to check these trees. Yeah. Well, it turns out that that's not the case. It turns out that there are strict guidelines in place uh, within, I believe, uh, Yosemite. Yosemite specifically, not just some big general guideline that leaves things up to the local agencies. No, Yosemite had a specific guideline for how trees are to be trimmed and how they're to be maintained. And They had obligations checked. to evaluate the danger yep. of the trees. They had to make determinations about it. And the argument, and the court pointed out several times in here that this is on the pleading. So I don't know if they 
potentially didn't believe the pleadings or thought that the facts might not come out, but they said several times that this is just on the pleadings and we have to accept the pleadings are true. But then they went after the government and they said the government over and over again says it, it's discretionary, it's discretionary, but they even have um, Yosemite Park Directive Number 25, which talks about evaluating the risks of trees. Right. They have like a seven-point system to um, under which a tree can be deemed a total hazard and or, or each tree is assigned a total hazard rating and a defect rating and things like that. So there is um, – uh, there isn't that much judgment or choice because th- any such judgment or choice is obviated by the fact that there is a pretty rigid uh, objective set of things for them to consider when they're maintaining the trees in the park, um, which is kind of surprising. But but hey, I mean, that's the, the exception has its bounds, and this seems to be outside of those bounds of that exception. Right. So um, they allowed the case to go forward based on the pleadings, at least on the negligence cause of action. There and, and for the first of two times today, there was a dissent in this opinion. There's going to be a dissent in another case that we're going to talk about in a minute. And that dissent was, no, this is a discretionary policy that the majority is trying to create a mandatory duty or mandatory obligation that they, they created for themselves. So that's really right. the distinction. They, they cite the fact that the policy itself, which is pretty thorough, has elements in there that allow for to exercise discre- discretion. And now we're getting into like a uh, discretion inception world where it's like discretion within non-discretion. Like the movie? Right, like the movie. But the real point here is that the it really comes back to what are the rules and regulations that the government set for itself? And if it's a rule, regulation, obligation, duty, whatever you want to call it, that's set by the government itself, then it that takes it out of this exception. But if it's discretionary, then it falls into this exception and you can't sue under the Federal Tort Claims right. Act. This is we see this in in cases against schools too or state entities where if it's about the policy making if you're suing them for making a bad policy where they exercise discretion coming up with it they won't be liable that's barred but if they fail to follow their own policy that they have then there might be liability so very analogous to that. Let's go on to our next case, Sean. Sure. The next case is Target Corporation versus Golden State Insurance Company Limited. Uh, This is from the second DCA. It has to do with insurance and additional insurance. Right. So I, I, I open up this case to read. And by the way, this is the third case that was decided on the exact same day. I wonder if all four of our cases are decided. You're fascinated on the same by day. that, huh? Fascinated. It's just a, it, little things fascinate me. They're courts me. of appeal. They issue opinions all the time. It's not that crazy. That but I'm how many times do we days. find four interesting opinions that were issued on the exact same? Must day? be a special day. Maybe it is. Is it your birthday? Nope. No. Nope. That would nope. be not a, my birthday. Very boring birthday present. So. Um, I start reading this opinion, and I'm going to give you very quickly the facts, the underlying facts, because this comes from a personal from an underlying personal injury case where Target stores, which apparently is a large chain of like big box stores, apparently um, they have they they have a pharmacy department, and I start reading the, the case opinion, and it talks about a customer who sued Target because they they bought a prescription medication there. And the prescription medication turned out to cause uh, a, a very rare skin reaction. And one of the claims that the customer had 
was that um, she developed this as a result of a label. And I think that the label was... Mislabeling was, on the part of Target, I think. Right, was the, the label itself there. I read in the opinion was finish all of this medicine unless otherwise directed by your doctor. And I'm reading this opinion, and the underlying case sounds remarkably familiar to me. And I'm reading it going, this sounds just exactly like a case our firm handled several years ago for a young woman who had a serious rare skin reaction. She had mislabeled the product about finish it. And then I read a little bit further about where she was transported to as a result for injury. Yes. And um, is that when you, it started sounding very familiar? And then I went, that's our case. Yeah. This was our case. But this is a coverage case, and this often happens, of course, where- And we have nothing to do with this case specifically. Right. This, this is Target too. suing the insurance company for McKesson. McKesson is the supplier of the drugs. And um, this, of course, happens quite often, and we don't know about it in cases that we're handling where we're handling the tort action. There's some behind-the-scenes coverage case going on, and this is the behind-the-scenes I'm sure that happens often, yeah. So anyway, Target and McKesson, so the Target, the retailer, and the supplier, McKesson, have a agreement. Part of the agreement calls for broad indemnification um, for the uh, – supplier to indemnify target for any liability that may arise. And then it also calls for the supplier to maintain commercial general liability insurance and to add the retailer target as an additional insurance. So let's talk about what's an additional insurance. Sure. I have no idea. No, I'm kidding. Additional insured is someone that you can add to a policy and the protections of the policy or the benefits of the policy will apply to them. You see this in different types of policies. There's usually very strict specific requirements that need to be adhered to, to add someone as an additional insured. What do you want to add to that, Brian? No, I think that's exactly right. And it, it, oftentimes it can follow the underlying indemnity contract. And that's exactly what happened here. And the underlying indemnity contract said that if basically if there's something wrong with the drug products that we sell, that you are reselling to the public, we will indemnify you through our insurance company for that because you're just reselling our drugs. But it's narrow. And it wouldn't, and the argument here is would it cover this mislabeling? Right. It's narrow because it says um, that the additional insured endorsement only uh, provides coverage only, and now I'm quoting, only with respect to bodily injury or property damage arising out of your products, meaning the supplier's products, uh, which are distributed or sold in the regular course of the vendor's business, uh, meaning the target's business. The first rule here is that the interpretation of insurance policies are almost always a question of law for the judge to determine. The interpretation yeah. of the contract is almost always left to the judge. So that's the issue here. And the um, what, what Target was arguing is it doesn't matter. There's an ambiguity. And the first thing the court said is, well, the indemnity agreement between you is interpreted under Minnesota law. Right? Do you right. know what Minnesota is? I don't. Is that a city in in uh, Southern California? No, it's a state. It's a state, and they have their whole body of law. But their law really isn't different. What country is it in? Than us. It's in the United States. Okay. Shot. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, oh. anyway. Oh my God. Would your wife give me a call tonight to thank <laughs> me for employing you? Uh, she she. I'm sure she thanks you all the time for that. She just so, doesn't want me to know about it. The last. Um, the last. The, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. The last issue here is whether or not um, the argument that the plaintiff made in the claim, the case was that the um, 
the plaintiffs, the plaintiff argued, meaning that the, the target stores argued, you should wait to the end of the case to see how it shakes out, to see whether or not that labeling issue really applied. And of course, the little tidbit I can give our listeners, who I'm sure are sitting on the edge of their seat right now, is this case was settled. So it wasn't like there was going to be a jury verdict. But what the court said is, no, we don't wait to the end of the case. We look at the facts based upon how they're pled how they're presented, and because the facts in this case related directly to um, the the mislabeling issue, there's no coverage. Right. You can't wait until it shakes out to make a decision as to whether the insurance company had a duty to, to defend. That would be a pretty absurd outcome, wouldn't it? Sean, let's go to our last case for today. Jessica Farah versus Lowe's Hollywood Hotel. Um, and this is out of the second DCA. What, what's the date on this case, Brian? This case is, oh, October 9th. Oh, sorry. Before. We ruined your streak. The day before. We ruined your streak. So I could I could talk about this a little bit. So um, let's give some context here. In California, there are two types of, well, for purpose of this case, there's two types of premiums that are paid. If an employee misses a meal or rest break, or should we say if an employer fails to provide the employee with the opportunity to take a meal or rest break, um, there's something called a premium. And the uh, labor code says that the employer shall pay the employee one additional hour of pay at the employee's regular rate of compensation for each workday that the meal or rest break recovery period is not provided. So the key phrase there is regular rate of compensation. Then in California, of course, we have overtime and uh, we have overtime laws. And when you don't get uh, – and overtime laws require that an employee working in excess of eight hours or uh, more than a certain number of hours in a week, when they get overtime, they get the um, pay at the regular rate of compensation. They get w- w- one and a half times uh, a premium pay at the employee's regular rate of compensation. Okay. Um, sorry. No, that that's for the meal and rest breaks. For the overtime, they get – one and a half times the regular rate of pay. So that's the distinction there. It's regular rate of compensation for meal and rest break premiums and regular rate of pay for um, the overtime compensation. And both of these are called premiums. So the issue here is that um, the plaintiff was arguing that regular rate of pay should also include um, compensation in the form and of— And why is that important? Go ahead. Finish your thought. Compensation in the form of—or compensation— um, should also include anything in addition to their base hourly rate, such as in the hospitality industry, for example, uh, wait, um, tips, gratuities should be included in calculating that. Okay. And it's not. So why is it important? Why is it important to this decision? It's Why is that distinction important? Or yeah, why, why, is is it important? important? why is that important for this decision? But because that's what the plaintiff was seeking and um, – And what was the employer was only willing to pay just the regular rate of pay? The regular rate of pay. And they, but and by doing that, the employee was arguing that they should be or they're violating non-discretionary the bonuses, which are included. Right. This possibility of tips, anything Gratuities, else that things was like included that in included. that, yeah. And that would be they, the employee said there's no distinction; they're the same thing, right? Right. Uh, well, the trial court said that the regular rate of compensation means the additional hour premium is calculated just based on the base salary. So, what did the there, this? This is the second decision 
where it's a 2-1 split. What did the majority hold in this case? The majority agrees with the trial court and says, that's right. The phrase regular rate of compensation that we see um, for – that we're supposed to use for calculating meal and rest break premiums only includes the base salary. We don't need to include other items of pay that people typically get. And the rationale behind this decision was when it comes to paying for overtime, the compensation is for the time that was spent – working by the employee and you're paying them more because they've worked a certain number of hours. When it comes when it comes to premiums for missed meal and rest breaks, um, the, you're simply compensating them for not getting something they're entitled into the law, uh, under the law, but not necessarily because of the time that they worked. So I, I personally don't agree with that. I don't, well, I, and neither did Justice Edmund. That's right. Because she's the presiding judge of this, that specific division, incredibly bright person, also a former uh, president of the L.A. County Bar, by the way. And she wrote a dissent. And in her dissent, she said, effectively, that doesn't make any sense. She, she looked at the history of the language. She looked at the fact that the California Supreme Court has um, completely endorsed the legislative intent to be favorable to the employee. As I tell people often, there's 50 states in the United States, there's 49 employment laws, and then there's California. California is so skewed towards the employee, so favorable to the employee. Those are important issues. She looked at the history. She went back in time to look at 1913 and going forward from Did she see you when she went back in time? She, into 1913? Uh, no, she didn't have she a time machine. To you? She didn't have a time machine. And then she looked at um, the fact that the Supreme Court's noted in other decisions in recent years that um, the word uh, pay or compensation is synonymous. I think it's an extremely well-written opinion, and she ultimately comes down and concludes that the same meaning should be attributed to the substantially same language in the same statutes. The legislature, would, the legislature, she says, wouldn't have silently declared that these were two different things or two different issues. That's right, yeah, because the the majority opinion and what the employer here was arguing is that, well, look, if they, if they were supposed to be the same thing, the legislature wouldn't have used different terms, but they don't show the opposite. They don't show what Justice Edmund was saying, that you know, why would the legislator si- silently have used different terms? Shouldn't they have said something if they meant for it to be two different things? So they look at the same legislative history, really, and come to different conclusions. So I'll predict, Sean, that this is going to go up to the California Supreme Court, especially given possible. the yeah. uh, the way the opinion is written and, and the fact that they probably respect Justice Edmund and her opinion is very well written. Uh, so stay tuned. I mean, the California Supreme Court does take an awful lot of these cases, and this might be one that they take. So let's see what happens. That's all we got for today. Uh, I hope it was informative. I hope it was interesting. It I was. Hope Thank you. People realize that, that was October tenth, two thousand nineteen, is an important, important day in California jurisprudence. Why is that? Because of these three opinions, right? Okay. Right. All right. Uh, they were very interesting today. So I hope you all enjoyed this as much as we did. And shot. Where can they find us again? They can find us here at the office. Nope, Just come nope, on upstairs nope, or on nope, the thirty second. Nope, uh, we're online at kbklawyers.com and you know where to reach us. And thank you for tuning in. Until next time.